Lord, I just thank you for your goodness. Lord, we thank you for what you're already doing. We just thank you that we get to experience your presence as a family, as we come together just to worship you. And we, it's something we get to do, Father. And I thank you that this house, these people here, take full advantage of the opportunities that you bring, that you give us. And so, Lord, right now we're taking advantage of the opportunity to receive from you, to learn from you, to learn of your word, to be challenged, to be equipped, to be delivered, set free. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the teacher, and I thank you for your teaching ability and that you're going to teach and preach and encourage and exhort today through me. And I just pray, Father, that your message comes forth, and we love you. And, Father, we, just, we intentionally set our hearts to receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. I've been sharing a series, and my, my goal is to finish it today. I've been talking about David at Ziklag. This is part three. And the title is Five Choices That We Can Make or Need to Make for Partnering with Life and Hope. Five Choices to Partner with Life and Hope. Now, some of you who have a real good memory are thinking, wait a minute, two weeks ago you said seven, but now you're saying five. I actually have seven, but I had to cut two out for the sake of time so I can finish this message. Because each of these points, I could preach a whole sermon on each point. And so I had to eliminate two, and I'll share those at another time, probably. Um, But I wanted to narrow it down to five so I can just share these points and and we can be done. Because I'm not going to continue this message next week, have something else. I believe the Lord's put in my heart. So anyway, I'm going to talk about five choices for partnering with life and hope. And I want to recap. We're talking about the story of David and Ziklag, one of my favorite stories in the, Bi- stories in the Bible. And it's a situation where David and his mighty men, these, these warriors, uh, 600 of them, come home after fighting a lot of battles and whipping up the bad guys and everything. They come home to be with their families. And as they come into their town, the town is burned down with fire. And their wives and their children are gone. They've been kidnapped by the Amalekites. And they've been kidnapped to become slaves. And you can imagine not just slaves to do physical labor, but all kinds of slaves. And you can imagine what I mean by that. So imagine you coming home, men, you coming home, and your wives and your kids are gone, and you know who did it, and you know what... Their, their intent for them is. Imagine this, the, the level of distraughtness that you feel in your soul. Well, that's where these guys were. They were distraught. They were discouraged. They were hurting. They were crying. These mighty, powerful men were crying so hard that it says they had no more strength in them to cry. And then it says David even became more discouraged because his men, his, his fighting partners, these mighty soldiers, were talking of turning towards him and killing him. In other words, they were distraught, and they wanted to blame somebody. So, of course, blame the leader, because it's like, if we were here with our families instead of fighting your battles, this wouldn't have happened. And so David became more distraught because his friends and and warriors were going to turn against him. They were talking of stoning him. It says, but David. And that's where everything turns. The middle of distraught, discouragement, says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord. David didn't allow his, his emotions to spiral him out of control where he just laid in a puddle of, of hopelessness and despair. That's what many people do. 
They, they get hit with these overwhelming circumstances and they just melt into a puddle of mush and they stay there. David had that opportunity. He had that choice. But he chose to partner with life. He chose to partner with hope by strengthening himself in the Lord. Another translation says he encouraged himself in the Lord. So, and we know, or we can infer, and I'm more convinced now, that we know what he did because of his reputation. He praised and worshiped his father. He got in his presence and began to remind himself of the goodness of God in the midst of his troubling circumstances. So he began to worship God, began to remind himself of God's goodness. I'm going to read out of Psalm 34 real quick. Wasn't intending on reading this now, but I am now. But this is the kind of stuff that David would, would say. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him him, capital H, and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is a man who trusts in him. You know, he would say things like that. There's other places where David would say, why so downcast, soul? Why are you discouraged? He would talk to himself. He was crazy. He would talk to himself, why are you discouraged? Put your hope in God. He would talk to himself and say that. I will bless the Lord at all times. He was talking to himself. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. See, that's what I believe David did. He began to strengthen himself in the Lord by getting in his presence, reminding himself of the goodness of God, reminding himself of how God helped him in the past. And then he was confident that God was going to help him now. And so we need to do sometimes when we're in the midst of a bad circumstance, we need to be reminded, wait a minute, when I was in trouble last time, God helped me. He came through. He provided. He met my needs. Why would he not want to do that again? Why would he leave me here? And we need to remind ourselves and be strengthened and encouraged in the Lord. So it says he strengthened himself in the Lord. Then after he got his soul in a place of peace, my, my uh, paraphrase, then he sought the Lord. A lot of times people are trying to see God and hear what God's saying in the midst of the chaos that's going on in their soul, and you can't hear God in that circumstance. When your emotions are screaming at you and raging and, and even saying, blaming God, God, this is your fault, you did all this. When your, your soul is in that place, you can't hear God, I don't think. It's only when the place when you when, only when you're in a place of peace, which I believe David came to. He got his soul under subjection. He brought every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And then it says he sought the Lord. He said, "Lord, do I go after them, the enemy, and will we overtake them?" The Lord said, "Yes, go after them, and yes, you will overtake them." And so, guess what? They went after them. They overtook the enemy, slaughtered them, wiped them out. A few of them escaped, says 400 escaped on camels. And then they, not only did they get all of their wives and children back, but they got all of the loot, all the treasure that these Amalekites had stolen from other people. So they, they became very wealthy. But they got all of their family back. 
Got all these alerts going off on my iPad. Stop it. So we see that there was a horrible situation, and then we see the end result. But the, the turning point was when David strengthened himself in the Lord. If he did not strengthen himself in the Lord, I don't believe he would have had the same result. I don't think him sitting there in a puddle of despair would have led him to victory and his people being set free. There would have been a different story, I believe, in the Bible, different result. This is my question I asked you a couple weeks ago. On a regular basis, which do you partner with? Hope or discouragement? Which do you partner with? What are you characterized by? Are you an encouraging person or are you a negative person? In other words, do you, do you habitually gripe and complain and, and just everything is negative? Or are you an encouraging person? And some people may say, well, that's just my personality. I'm just a negative person. I disagree. That may have become your personality, but it doesn't have, it doesn't have to stay your personality. It's become your disposition, but your disposition can change. If you find yourself being a, a negative, complaining, griping, whining person, you have made a series of choices to get your disposition to that place. And I asked you this question because the Lord asked me this question uh, a, while, a short time ago. What's the difference between a, a Christian that, that um, is in a lot of bondage versus a Christian who is overcoming? I'm like, what, Lord? What is the difference? And he said, a series of choices. A series of choices. Over time... We make choices every single day. Several choices a day we make. When something, when a circumstance comes and hits you, right there you have a choice. When David was faced with that circumstance of his kids or his family being kidnapped and his town burned down, he had a choice to make. We see what choice he made. We have an opportunity to make choices. We can choose to partner with life, or we can choose to partner with discouragement. What does it mean to partner with life? What does that look like? It means being reminded of and feeding on the goodness of God, expressing gratitude and gratefulness to the Father, feeding on encouragement in any situation, regardless of the circumstances. Partnering with discouragement looks like focusing on and being reminded by yourself or someone else how bad the circumstances are. If, if, elevating and exalting those negative circumstances above the ability and goodness of the Father, blaming, gossiping, bad-mouthing people, and feeding on fear and worry, partnering with hope or partnering with discouragement. We choose all the time. We choose all the time. And I believe you would all agree with me that, that partnering with discouragement is the easiest and most attractive path in the time of crisis. Partnering with discouragement is the easiest and most attractive choice when you're going through a crisis. Because we feel bad, we feel discouraged, and we want, we want someone to partner with us in that. Now it's okay, I'm not saying that when you're hurting and discouraged that you can't go to someone and say, man, I'm hurting, I need help. That's what family is for. 
We need to help and encourage each other. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about when you choose continually, or I choose continually, and I used to choose a lot, to partner with discouragement. In other words, here's the circumstance, and I would just stay in this puddle of gloom and discouragement for, for, for a period of time. Even when I felt like the Holy Spirit was trying to encourage me to come up, say, son, come on. What have I taught you? What have I shown you? It's like, yeah, I know that, but woe is me. And my purpose for sharing with anybody else was not necessarily for them to encourage me to help me come out of that. It was for them to partner with me in my misery. But I began to realize how well that was working for me. Thought, this is dumb. This is stupid. You know, waddling around, feeling sorry for myself. It's like, what good was that doing me? Wouldn't do me any good. It felt good, if you know what I mean. So moving into maturity and, and overcoming is from a series of simple choices. And the good news is the Holy Spirit who lives in us gives us the ability, self-control, to make godly choices. He gives us the ability to partner with him, to partner with hope. But then we choose to embrace that ability or not. Series of choices. If I want to have a great marriage, every single day I make choices that are either going to build for that wonderful marriage or are going to tear it down. I can wish, oh God, I want my marriage to be good. I want my marriage to be good. I want my marriage to be good. I can wish all I want to. I can cry out to God all I want to. But if I'm not making choices to partner with him, and love my wife and encourage her and do the things that's going to build for a great relationship, then it's not going to happen. And on the contrary, I could be making choices by the way I talk to my wife, by not talking to my wife, which is really, really, really bad. Woo, bad. <laughs> by how I treat her and neglect her or whatever, I'm making choices to tear down my marriage. So when I say, I want to have a great relationship, or you're saying, I want to have a great marriage, what are you doing? What choices are you making? If you are in cruise control, if you're just, everything's fine, so like why make any, diff why make any different choices? If you're just kind of cruising in your marriage, you are not making a choice for a great marriage. Guaranteed. Just a side note. We're not even talking about marriage today. That's just an example. If I want to have a great relationship with my kids, you know, I hear this, you know, just meeting with people and talking to people and, and people who, who have teenagers or um, I've had four, I have four boys that were teenagers. They're, they're grown men. Uh, and I have two kids that are teen and preteen. And I believe, you'd have to ask my boys to see if it's true, but they're not here so you can't ask them, so you have to take my word for it. But I believe I have a great relationship with my older boys. Great relationship with them. The kind of relationship that I've desired, I have. They call me all the time. They call me often. When we're here together, they love to hang out with me. When I was there with them, hey, Dad, let's go hang out. Let's just go do this. They, they desire relationship with me. And I believe it's because, and the same thing with their mom. I have a great relationship with their mom. Sometimes we get into a, a little tiff or whatever, who they call more. You know, Lisa will say, oh, you know, so-and-so called me and told me this and this and this and 
tell me this and this. And she's all excited because he told her this wonderful news. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. And she's like, and she'll say, uh, she'll ask me a question. I'll say, sorry, he called me yesterday. I already knew that. Oops, I already knew that. And then sometimes vice versa. I'll say something. Say, oh, yeah, I knew that last week, you know. But the, the good thing is that we have a wonderful relationship with our boys. Not perfect. But we have a great relationship because of a series of choices that we made as they were growing up. Choices like repenting for the mistakes that I made in them growing up. Saying, son, I'm so sorry for, for doing this or saying this or yelling or whatever. I'm so sorry. Would you forgive me? That's a choice right there. Because we're not talking about perfection. Otherwise, none of us would make it. But making choices. So if you're saying, you know, I want this, I wish, I wish, I wish, and you want something, you have the ability to make the choices to move in that direction. But you also have the ability to make the choices to move away from the direction of that which you desire. Okay, so let's talk about five choices we need to make to partner with life. Number one, touched on this a couple weeks ago. It's probably the most important, maybe. Spending time regularly with Jesus. Number one, choice we need to make. If I'm going to partner, if I'm going to build a lifestyle of partnering with life, numero uno, I have to abide in the vine. I have to hang out with Jesus, spend time with him regularly, and not just when I'm going through crisis. Because, see, it's easy for me to go after him when I'm going through a hard time. But what about in the good times? What about when everything's going great? Do I say, thank you, Jesus, I'll see you next week? Or I'll see you when things go bad. Many churchgoers live their life that way. They only go after God when things are rough. And he doesn't mind us coming after him when things are rough. But he also wants us to hang out with him when things are good too. He wants relationship. Do you know those people or have those people in your life that only come to you when they need something? Do you and that person necessarily have a great relationship or is it like, because oh. when they call or you see them show up, you know they need something. They want something. And I don't think, I'm not saying inferring that God, when we're coming to God, he kind of throws his head back in size and I don't believe that's his heart at all. I think his heart is anytime we come towards him, he enjoys that. But he would rather us not wait until it gets bad. But it's okay if it's bad. Come on. He says, come on, son. Come on, daughter. Spend time with him regularly. We have to be intentional. Two weeks ago, I said that. How many of you who were not spending time with him regularly were challenged and you began to intentionally, don't raise your hand, do that? Or did you just say, man, that's good. I need to do that. And you're still sitting in the same place. You made a choice. You made a choice to agree with the word, but not apply the word, and therefore, nothing happened. We need to choose to be doers of his word. You know, a couple of weeks ago, or maybe longer now, I can't remember, I lose track of time, but a little while ago, I realized that I hadn't been spending that intimate close time like I'm talking about with him. Going through a challenging time, and somehow I unplugged, allowed busyness or whatever to Caused me just to kind of go with the flow, if you know what I mean. And then, like I said, he, woke, he didn't wake me up. I woke up in the middle of the night, used the restroom, went back to bed, and typically I can go right back to sleep. But for, the, for whatever reason, I couldn't at this time. It was 4 a.m. Couldn't go back to sleep. And I felt like they were encouraging me, hey, son, come spend time with me. It's like, 
You know what time it is? And it's funny because I was wide awake, but then when I felt him encouraging me to come spend time with him, I started getting sleepy. Man, I could sleep now. But I, t- I said, okay, I'm going to do this. And I got up about 4.30 by then. It took me 30 minutes to decide. That was a waste, wasn't it? But I got up, spent time with him, and it was, it was amazing. I felt like I plugged into something, and all of a sudden, hope started filling my soul. And I didn't realize until that time that I was feeding on discouragement. Didn't realize it until I plugged into him. Saying plugged in, what does that mean, plugged into him? I put on my, well, it was 4 o'clock in the morning, so I didn't want to wake anybody else up. So I had my headphones on. So only I could hear, and I had my worship music blasting in my head, in my ear. And I was just worshiping him quietly. But just worshiping him, thinking about him, praising him. And all of a sudden, he started talking to me and telling me things, encouraging me, saying, son, and he just started sharing. And I, I wrote a lot of things down. Not for you, it's for me. But I started writing these things down. It's like, oh my goodness. And I felt he was, my soul was filling up with faith and encouragement. Things that he told me before that I had forgotten because I allowed discouragement to feed my thinking, and I forgot about what he was telling me. And as I was listening to him, I thought, oh, my goodness, and just encouraged. And then my whole disposition changed, and I was just encouraged. Can't explain it, but I know you know what I mean. So number one, we have to spend time with Jesus regularly and do whatever it takes to make that happen. And one, don't wait until you have time because it won't happen. Number two, number two, Matthew 7, 24 through 27, it says, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, this is Jesus, right after he, he preached the Sermon on the Mount, and then he ends it with this, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, Hears and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built this house on the rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built this house on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall, or great was its destruction. So number two, we need to build our lives upon the rock, which is the word of God. We need to build our lives upon the word of God. Remember when Satan told Jesus, he said, hey, if you're the son of God, then I, you know, turn this stone into bread. And then Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that used to come out of God's mouth. He said, every word that proceeds, not past tense, present tense which would include past tense. I mean, God's written word came out in the past. He says, we shall live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, what he's saying, that's what I live by. What he said in his word, that's what I live by. In this, in this story that Jesus says, when he gives, he says, the story that he shares, the example Two people are building. Two choices are being made. One's building. They're both building their houses. The houses represent their lives, right? I think we'd all agree with that if we look at it. So they're both building their lives. One is building on the sand, and one is building on the solid foundation, the rock. The rock meaning doing what Jesus said. This person's building on not doing what Jesus said. 
And you notice both houses that are being built, the storms come against both houses. So whether you're walking in obedience to Jesus or not, you will have storms. Period. It's not that, oh, if I do everything right and I please Jesus, he's going to keep me from the storms of life. That's not true. The storms will come against all of us, but there's only one house that will stand. The house or the life that has built its life upon the word of God that is proceeding out of his mouth. There are many churchgoers that spend their lives living, they're building their lives on their own opinion and their own beliefs and their own thoughts. And they don't have anything to do with what God's word says. So then all of a sudden, destruction begins to come. They're like, what? But I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. I go to church. And they're wondering, what the heck's going on? They're building on a faulty foundation. You know, there's a saying that people say, very common, and you've probably heard people say it, and maybe you said it. And it's the phrase, God will not give me, God will not give me more than I can bear. Anybody ever heard that? Raise your hand. Anybody ever said that? Raise your hand. God will not give me more than I can bear. And then I, I remember hearing one lady say, you know, God will not give me more than I can bear, but this is, I can't take this. This is overwhelming me. So therefore, God is lying because this is more than I can bear. That's the, that's the if you follow that reasoning, because how many you know that people get situations that overwhelm them, that overtake them, that crush them, that destroy them? If they're saying, well, God's not going to give me more than I can bear, but yet this is crushing me, then was God a liar? Let me read that passage. It's 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. It says, the New Living Translation, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. That's, what, that's where they get that, right? However, that's not the end of it. See, one problem, quit looking at the board for a second. One problem is people take part of a verse or portion of God's word and they misuse it. And that's what I see happening here. Okay, you can look at the board again. It says, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so you can endure. That way out is what people aren't taking. They're in a circumstance, a situation. It is crushing them. God provides a way of escape or a way out. I believe that's either his word, his principles, or his wisdom. And if I'm used to living my life and doing my own thing already, and then if all of a sudden the Lord is saying, this is what you need to do, I'm like, no thanks, I'll do this. I believe that's what's happening. People are not taking, he provides a way of escape, but they're not taking it. And therefore, they get crushed or destroyed or or whatever. The point being, we can't live our life the way we want to and expect the blessing of God in our lives. Do my own thing, I'm doing my own thing, do my own thing, get in trouble. Uh Uh-oh, I'm in trouble. I've made a big mess. Jesus, will you help me? I need help. You see this mess I got in? See this mess? Maybe out of his mercy, he helps me. Or the solution happens, or somehow I get delivered out of that circumstance. And what's typically the situation? I go back to living my own life again. 
I go back to making my choices based on my thoughts, my philosophy, my opinion. And that's how many churchgoers live their lives. Notice I'm not saying Christ followers. Because there's a difference between a churchgoer and a Christ follower. A Christ follower is someone who follows Christ. Remember, he said, follow me and I will make you. Fishers of men, follow me and I will make you. He's making us if we follow him. If I'm not following him, he's not making us. We're doing our own thing. And so the challenge is, is I need to, number two, is I need to bait or build my life on the word of God. You know what? A lot of challenges going on, a lot of turmoil that our country is facing, experiencing right now. And I get in conversations with Christians and when I hear them saying things and they're sharing their hurt out of their, their soul and everything, in a lot of situations, I don't hear their opinion being based on the word of God. But I hear the opinion being based on the opinion of man that is prevalent through our media. And many of us are partnering with the philosophy of the world. And we don't realize that it's tearing us up. I can promise you this, promise you this there's no peace if you're partnering with, with the philosophy of the world. There's no peace in that. There may be a temporary satisfaction kind of thing, but there's no long-term peace. There will only be peace when we put our hope and our expectation in the Lord. It's like I, I began to make the declaration back in September of this, of actually 2016, September. I said, my hope for this great nation does not rest in anyone elected into the White House. But my hope is that for this nation is in Jesus Christ. I didn't realize how important that was going to be. People are freaking out right now because of who's elected in the White House. Regardless of who's in the White House, that's not where my hope lies. My hope lies in the one who's over all of us. And only if you put your hope in him, and I'm not talking about just mental assent, hope meaning my life is in your hands. I am following you. That's when you're going to experience peace. That's when you're going to experience the overcoming abundant life that he's called us to live. I need to move on so I can get finished. Number three, what's the third thing we need to do? Philippians 4, 8, it says, and now dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Fix your mind. Fix your thoughts. Set your thoughts. In one translation, it says to meditate. Some people get freaked out by that word because they think of other religions and everything or weird poses and all that stuff. But that word meditate is in the Bible. And what it means, especially in the Old Testament, because it talks about meditating on the Lord and, and him, it means to, I can't remember if, uh, the, the Hebrew word, it's like means to chew the cud. Like when you see cows in, out in the pasture and they, they, um, they eat the grass, they, they get it, take in all this grass. And this is what I heard they do. They take in all this grass and then it goes lay down somewhere and then they vomit it all back up. They vomit it back into their mouth. And we're about to eat a little bit, aren't we? Sorry. And then they begin to chew on that again. And what I hear is that the grass goes on a certain portion of their stomach. It comes back up. They chew on it again. And they keep chewing on it. And 
You know, they keep, and it's like the word meditate means to like to reach you on something over and over and over again, the word of God or something that's lovely, something that's good, something that's wonderful, something that's praiseworthy over and over and over meditate. Think on these things. And it's interesting because he says, after he shares some great things in the previous verses, and he says, finally, fix your thoughts on what is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, admirable. Think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise. You know why he tells us to do that? I feel like he showed me this the other day. He says, you know why the Lord is saying, fix your mind on these types of things? Because we are always fixing our mind on something. And I'd be willing to say this, people who are negative or chronically negative or mostly negative and what you hear from them, negative, negative, you can tell what their thought process is. You can tell what that person is meditating on because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Does that make sense? And so what happens is, in, in the context of right here, when he says, and finally, my brothers, the previous verses, he says, do not be anxious or worried about anything, but instead, he tells you what to do, to thank God and to worship him and everything. And then, closing that part, he says, now, fix your thoughts on this. So instead of worrying, because worrying is fixing your mind on that negative circumstance. Worrying is fixing your mind on, on a fear. So my son hasn't come home yet. It's 12 o'clock. He hasn't called. Oh, no, I bet he's gotten in an accident. Oh, no, I bet he was killed. And what happens? Your mind begins to meditate. You know what's weird? I just thought it just reminded of this weird, weird thing, how we can partner with fear and not even realize it. You can partner with fear and literally invite fear into your soul. And I did this one time. We were driving. I never even told Lisa this. We were driving to uh, South Dakota many years ago. And we were going through Nebraska, the beautiful, wonderful metropolis of, of Nebraska. I mean, big palm trees all over, you know, just. If you're from Nebraska, I'm sorry. I'm not messing with you. But we were going through Nebraska, and it was dark, and it was these single-lane highways. I don't know why we took that way, but we did. We're, so we're going up, and it was dark, and I was driving. And it was single-lane, you know, each way. And, and as I was driving... And as the cars were going, I think the speed limit was 55, 60, 65. I can't remember because it was many years ago. You know, the cars are going past you fast, right? And it's like if they moved over a few inches, you'd have a head-on collision. Because there's nothing to separate you from the cars except a yellow line <laughs> that, point, that paints an invisible barrier that's supposed to keep the car from coming in your lane. Okay, you get the point? Get the picture? So as I'm driving, I started <laughs> stupid. Now I think of it. I started meditating. I was thinking of, of like these cars coming to my lane and hitting us head on. And I just kept imagining this. I don't know why. I think there was an invitation to partner with fear now that I think of it. And I began to think about that over and over and over and over. And then all of a sudden, guess what? I became afraid. I started pulling over onto this side of the road because I was afraid that a car was going to come in my lane and hit us. I mean, literally, I became afraid. Like, that was stupid. But I believe, going back to that choice again, the Bible talks about taking our thoughts captive. If we don't take our thoughts captive, your thoughts will take you captive. 
And it talks about the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly or carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And we, a lot of times, use that verse of those verses, you know, for talking about spiritual warfare and taking down strongholds and that kind of thing. That's actually talking about your mind. Talking about the spiritual strongholds and the, and the warfare in your thinking. That's what that verse is referring to. Now, you can use it for principles and other stuff, but it's talking about your thought process. We need to take our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. We need to set our mind, our thinking on things that are lovely, noble, praiseworthy, those kinds of things, because you are setting your mind on something. Choosing to partner with life and hope or discouragement. It's a choice we get to make. And because we have Holy Spirit in us, spirit of self-control, we can choose to partner and set our minds on those things. And number four. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Number four principle, making declarations must be a regular part of our life. Not only do we think about whatever is noble and pure and lovely, we need to declare. We need to speak the things. In other words, let's say, for example, you're in a bad circumstance, a bad situation. And your mind wants to start resting on the negative, the fear. Not only do you set your mind on God's goodness and everything, but you begin to declare what you believe God wants to do in a circumstance. Or you declare the goodness of God for what you've experienced in the past. Father, you are good. You are always good. You love me. You meet all my needs according to your riches and glory. You're going to take care of me in this situation. I'm not saying that you're necessarily going to get what you want. But we can declare that God is good that God loves me, that he has not forsaken me. He will never leave me. And when you begin to declare, because the Bible says in James chapter 3, I believe it is, that whatever, wherever your tongue goes, that's where your life goes. If you're speaking negative and cursing and, and just judgments on people and just, man, life stinks and my job stinks and my family stinks and all the, and you're seeing it. Guess what? You're moving in that direction. You are partnering with that. And you are in faith moving in that direction. You are in faith. Your words are so powerful that Jesus said, you know what? You can say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea. And if you believe it, it will happen. So it's very important for our tongues, for our declarations to be in line with what God would have us say. And number five, and I skipped, I, tur- I eliminated the other two so I can get to this one. And it's not that this is most important, but this, we can do the other five, but I believe this, without this, I believe actually all five of them go together. Need to spend time with Jesus. We have to be obedient to his word. We need to meditate on him and his word. We need to be declaring his word, his truth, his goodness. And then, finally, we have to develop a lifestyle of praise and worship. We have to. I'm not just saying this is a good idea. I'll get pretty dogmatic on this point. We have to. And and not in the sense of you better or else. But in a victory, victorious life, this is a major key. 
This is one of those invitations that God is saying, son, daughter, come. I got something amazing for you. This is part of it. This is part of the key to getting into the overcoming, abundant, victorious life. Praise and worshiping our king. Lifestyle, not just waiting till Sunday, but also in participating on Sunday. But lifestyle. Notice lifestyle. You know, I read Psalms 34 earlier where he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And we know David's reputation. We know that was true. His praise was continuously. He was always praising God, spending a lot of time praising him. In Psalms 8, Psalms chapter 8, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Who, who had, let's see, who have set your glory above the heavens? Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength. Because of your enemies that you have silenced, you, let's see, because of your enemies that you have, you may silence the enemies and the avenger. Can you slow down? <sighs> when I consider the he- your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, your Lord, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. I find something interesting here. In verse 5 it says, For you have made him a little lower than the angels. You have covered him with glory and honor. Now, prophetically, we know in this passage, he's talking about Jesus, but he's also talking about man. God has made us a little lower than the angels, and he has put our, his glory on us. That word honor in verse five, it's Hadar. It means splendor, honor, glory, adornment, magnificence, beauty. This noun comes from the verb Hadar, to honor, to glorify, to make splendid. Hadar speaks of the splendor that belongs to God, to his creation, to his kingdom, and to man made in God's image. The biblical view of man is higher and more worth affirming than any of the alternative views. In this reference, God has actually crowned man with splendor in spite of his smallness relative to the vast heavens. So basically, God has put glory on us, his sons, his daughters. And also in this verse, it's interesting because in verse 2, Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength. It says, because of your enemies that you may silence the enemies of the avenger. Jesus quoted this verse in Matthew chapter 21, verse 15. Read it real quick. Starting with verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you read out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise, perfected praise. So over here where it says, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength. This note down here says, Jesus plucked the first phrase of this verse and used it to justify young people praising him as Messiah. 
The Septuagint or Greek Bible from which Jesus quoted considered the Hebrew word here rendered strength to be better translated praise. Praise, praise, praise. Strength from praise. Remember the Bible says David strengthened himself in the Lord. Remember that? He strengthened himself in the Lord. I bet you he praised. I bet you he praised. And here's what's fascinating too. All this connection here in this passage, verses 1 through 9, it talks about, talks about glorifying God. Then it talks about praise in place of strength. It talks about his enemies. And then it talks about the dominion that we have. And I believe the connection, there's a connection in a, between um, the dominion that God has given us as, as sons and daughters. He has given us dominion. He desires us to walk in dominion. And I believe a key to that is praise. A key to that is praise. You know, John 4, 23, let me read that real quick. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth gospel book. Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. In verse 23, he says, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such to worship him. He's seeking such to worship him. And I was thinking, why is God seeking those kind of people? I used to think, well, God is seeking people to worship him. But why is he seeking those kind of people, people that worship him? Romans 8.37 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. As it is written, for, you sh- for your sake, for your sake we, are all, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. Keep that in mind. Romans 8, 16 through 18. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory of which shall be revealed in us. What is an heir? I looked in the the dictionary. A person legally entitled to the property or rank of another on that person's death. A person legally entitled to the property or rank of another on that person's death. The Bible says that we are joint heirs with Christ. We are to co-reign with him. Joint heirs, and so an heir, a person legally entitled to the property or rank of another on that person's death. Remember Jesus died? It was his death that made us, that made, paved the way for us to be joint heirs with Christ. We are joint heirs with him. And then backing up to that verse 30, 35, Romans 8, 35 again says, who shall, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted, accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. 
And I was thinking, what is a conqueror? What is a person, again, a Christian who survives or just makes it in life, doing okay, versus a more than conqueror? And I think the first one is a, is a Christian or a churchgoer or whatever you want to call them that they're, they're getting by, they're doing okay. But they are pretty much the only ones that benefit from their relationship with God. They're hanging in, they're doing okay. More than a conqueror is someone whose victory gets experienced by other people around them. See, David, and here's why I love David so much, and I didn't realize this. David, in the Old Testament, King David, was a picture of a man walking in dominion. He is a picture of a man, an example of a man walking in dominion. And remember, when he was watching his father's few little sheep, as his brother called it, he was watching those sheep, being faithful, taking care of his father's sheep. And it says that a bear and a lion, at two different times, a lion and a bear came after him or those sheep, and David killed those predators, one with his bare hands. He killed them. He overcame protecting the sheep. What was David probably doing out there in the backside of the wilderness? Worshiping and praising God, playing his harp. And then later on, after he killed the bear and the sheep, then all of a sudden there's this bigger bear coming after the children of Israel named Goliath. Now, David was already, he had already built the, the habit or the, the, strong, the strong foundation in his heart of, of God being his deliverer. He saw the lion and the bear destroyed. Then all of a sudden, here's this bigger giant named Goliath. And David's like, really? That's all you guys got? And David, this, this Goliath, this big man, taunting and intimidating the children of Israel, the, the armies, they were afraid of him. And David saw him, heard what he was saying, and got offended or took up offense. Like, are you kidding me? We're going to let him talk like this? And the Bible says that David didn't stagger and run, and, and, or he didn't kind of tiptoe or very timidly walk towards Goliath. The Bible says he ran down after him. Goliath was taunting and saying, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. And David said, you know what? I'm going to cut your head off. And the interesting thing was that was a prophetic statement and declaration because David did not even have a sword. All he had was rocks and a sling. So his plan, I don't know if he thought this through, but how it played out is not only did he hit him in the head and knock him down with the rock, but then he took his own sword and cut his head off. He wiped out the enemy. So David had built a stronghold and a, and a practice, a habit of praising God, of trusting God, of, of experiencing God's deliverance. And in, in his, it started with protecting some small sheep, and then it moved to a whole nation. And then in the, in the recent story of Ziklag, his families and his friends' families are, are kidnapped. And because of him already experiencing the goodness of God, And him praising God and strengthening himself, then he went after the enemy, got his family back. See, he was more than a conqueror because of him strengthening himself in the Lord. Not only did he lead the other men who were distraught and discouraged. Remember, they were distraught and discouraged still. David said, guys, let's go. Time to get up. Quit whining. Let's go. The Lord said, we're going to take them over and, you know, get our people back. Let's go. So he led these men and set the people free. David's habit was praise, worshiping his king. 
He's an example of what it looks like to take dominion. Remember, Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. I'm a paraphrase to preach the gospel, to proclaim the good news and all that, to set the captives free. You know, I heard, I heard a preacher say this, and some of you have probably heard this before. See, the Spirit of God is in us for our sake, for our benefit. The Spirit of God comes upon us for other people's benefit. When I allow the Holy Spirit to come upon me, the anointing coming upon me, it's for the benefit, the gifts that come out to benefit and bless other people. That's what it means to walk in dominion. But we're not going to walk in dominion and freedom for the sake of other people if we're living in bondage in our, inside ourselves. If David had not learned to overcome his own distraughtness, then the people would have stayed slaves. There are people that God has for you to set free, but you have to overcome your own demons. You have to, to be set free by the stuff that is holding you in captive. And I was thinking, why is it that God is looking for these kind of people? Because he's looking for sons and daughters to, to walk in the dominion that he paid for. See, it's not just about worshiping God and singing nice, lovely songs. But that's part of, you know, every principle of God's word, every principle is so multifaceted. There's, there's so many parts to it. Sometimes we can get so fixated on one part, but we miss the beauty of everything else. You know, giving. We talked about giving. There are, it's a multidimensional thing that he's inviting us into. Some people only look at having to take money out of their pockets and put it in the plate. They're only looking at one aspect of it. But there's a whole bunch of aspects that make that such a beautiful principle. It's the same thing with worship and praise. It's a multifaceted thing. Why do we praise and worship? We praise him because he tells us to. We praise him because he's worth it. Those two alone, I'm done. But you know, praise and worship is mainly for our benefit, not his. God doesn't need to be encouraged. He's not down and gloomy thinking, man, I hope some kids praise me today. Because, man, I'm tired. That's not it. You become like that which you worship. Materialism or him. So he's looking for those worshipers, those sons and daughters who will praise, worship him, to learn who will walk in dominion so that my victories get experienced by people around me. People in this community, you know, we're making declarations and praying for revival, for transformation in this community. How's that going to happen? By his people living in revival. By his people being liberated and free from the bondages. And then as you begin to declare freedom to the people around you, and you begin to walk in freedom around them, and they begin to experience your victory. So it's not about us just talking and declaring but it's about us walking it as well. Praise and worship. That's a whole other message. But I want to say this. As the church, we really don't get it. 
And my prayer is that God would help us to get it. That it's not just singing lovely songs. It's not just making God happy. There is so much, you know, praise and worship is warfare. I do want to read one more passage real quick. I'm about to shut this down. Psalms 149, I think. I didn't tell you guys this, so you won't have it, um, Abby. I didn't know I was going to read it. It says, this is pretty interesting. It says, verse, Psalms 149, it says, praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise in the assembly of the saints. Let Israel rejoice in her maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name with the dance. Ooh, did you say dancing? Uh-huh. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and harp. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Okay, that was pretty tame right there so far, right? Here's where it gets good. Let the praises, let the high praises of God be in their mouths and a two-edged sword in their hand. Then it says to execute judgment, excuse me, to execute vengeance on the nations and punish on the punishment on the peoples to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron to execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all the saints. Praise the Lord. What I believe that's talking about. Praising and worshiping. High praises in our mouth. A two-edged sword in our hand. I see that it's simultaneously when we're worshiping and praising him, judgment is being executed on the enemy. Not physical people, spiritual enemy. Strongholds are being broken and coming down when God's people simply praise and worship him. Simply. When you worship and praise God, this is why I believe we really don't have to fixate on the enemy. There are too many Christians that fixate so much on the enemy. They're so concerned about what the enemy's doing. Oh, the devil's doing this. Watch out, the devil. I'm not saying we don't need to be aware of his strategies, but our focus needs to be on him. When we're focusing and praising and worshiping him, a lot of times he routes the enemy. We've seen that physically in the Old Testament. He said, put the praises out front. Or actually, Jehoshaphat, God didn't even say put them out front. Jehoshaphat said, let's put the praises out front. Put them out front. And as they began to say, God, you're so good and your love endures forever, they didn't shoot any arrows or throw any spears. Then God routed the enemy. The enemy turned on each other and they killed themselves. They worshiped him and he fought their battle. When you get in despair and you're discouraged and you're frustrated and everything, and you begin to, Father, you're so good, and you begin to crank up one of these worship songs that we sing or, or whatever, and you just begin to worship him, I believe spiritual warfare is happening on your behalf. That is what's happening. But we don't get that. You know, there was a pastor I was talking to this week, and he made the comment. I don't remember what we were talking Well, I do remember what we were talking about. But he said, you know, people intentionally come to church late, so they, get, they come after the worship and praise. And I wanted to say to him, but I didn't. Glad we don't have that problem at my church. <laughs> but what I find interesting is that is a common thing simply because we don't get it. 
we really don't get it. If we understood what's happening, what it means when we praise and worship and honor him, what happens? I believe that's why a lot of our, a lot of our worship here in this house and praise is very prophetic. It's very declarative, declaratory. What's the, whatever word I'm trying to say, you know what I mean? What is it? Declarative. Is that the right word? If it's not, you know what I mean, right? But I believe that a, not all the time, but a lot of times when, when, when it sounds militant, when the drums kind of get pretty strong and everything, I believe the Holy Spirit is leading us into warfare. And when we're singing songs, the chains are broken. Every chain is broken. Every chain is it's like, okay, the chains are broken already. Can we go on to something else? <laughs> Can you imagine... Here's what I believe is going on behind the scenes. When we're declaring every chain is broken, I hear those chains falling. There's somebody out in our community who is bound by drug addiction or, or sexual addiction or whatever, and all of a sudden, the light comes on. And they're like, they used to go to church when they were little kids or whatever. They got saved at the age of 10, and they're age 35 or whatever, and they're just in bondage, and it's like, I'm going back to Jesus. And they have no reason, they have no understanding of why. But all of a sudden, they show up in church, whether it's this church or another church, and it's like, I want him. Amen. So we are not just singing songs. We're not just singing the same song over and over and over again because Todd forgot the next song we're supposed to sing. That's not why. And I just want to challenge and encourage you. There is more to it in praise and worship. And it's not just about worshiping him, but it's actually, it's all about worshiping him. But he's inviting us into that so that we get to partner with him, walk in the dominion that he paid for to see people set free. When Paul said, you know, we're going through all these challenges and die, being killed, all this kind of stuff, he said, for your sake. He was talking to the saints. That letter was written to the saints. He said, for your sake, we're going through this. When you're going through a hardship, and you overcome, it's not just for your sake, but it's for the people that you get to influence. Would you stand with me? I challenge and encourage you guys to take a good hard look at King David because that's what you're supposed to be like. See, we're not called to look at David and say, wow, he was awesome. He was awesome, but he was a picture. He was an Old Testament figure of what he was kind of like a type of Jesus, you know, walking in, a, in authority and dominion, and, and Jesus is actually the better representation. He's the better picture, but we're supposed to walk like that in victory, in freedom, partnering with life so that those around us can be set free, but he wants us to be free too, Amen. He cares about you. He cares about me. He cares about the bondages you're going through. He cares about the, the sickness and the, and the destruction that's going on in our life, and the enemy's trying to do all this stuff. He cares about that. He's calling us to draw close to him so he can do something about that. And then he wants to do something through us to other people. Amen? Five choices. Five choices of partnering with hope. Father, we thank you that you're so good, that you call us alongside of you. You've called us to be joint heirs with you, with Christ. You've called us to walk in dominion for the goodness of man, to serve and protect mankind. 
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And Lord, I thank you. That, that word is not for some of us. That word is for all of us. We are all called to lead well. Every single one of us in this room. We are called to lead well. And Lord, we say yes. We will walk in the fullness of fruitful and effective leadership in the calling that you have for every single one of us. And make that declaration over your people because we're going to partner with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.